um, Christmas is coming, Thanksgiving is behind us, uh, but it's, it's a busy season, I know, and I'd like to look ahead and, and um, get us all committed in, in our plans and be careful of each other. So I just wanted to check with you guys. Um, next, next Monday is the, if I'm the 6th. Yeah, December 6th is next Monday. Um, I'd like to start Matthew then, unless this presents a problem to anybody. If it does, I'd, I'd like you to speak up. We could go to the 13th. That's a week and a half before Christmas, but that cuts it a little bit close, and I, I know things get really busy. Um, we can hold it. Uh, we can... People want to go to the Advent. Yeah, there are activities um, here at Francis, I think, that night. So my recommendation, my suggestion is that we meet next week and start scripture and then not pick up again until um, we, we can meet the 3rd of January the 10th. I, I don't know how you guys handle your hangovers, so I guess the question is, <laughs> you know, particularly if you're going to have 20 people over and dogs and, you know, it's just... Um, would it be would it be better to wait till the tenth, or is the, what what do you guys say, Tracy? What would you say? Meet on the third, or wait until the tenth? That gives everybody a little bit more. I breathing. think I'm okay on the third. Theoretically, I uh, we're cooking up some, maybe out of town or getting back, you know, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> okay, that's good. Mark, what about you? Can you put your audio on? Matters not to me. Third of the tenth is fine. So you're saying off thirteenth, twentieth, twenty seventh. I'm looking at a calendar right now. Right. And then back on either the third or the tenth. Right. Okay. Fred, Francis, how are you guys? You've you've got large family burdens. I know. Uh, we're we're okay either the third or the tenth. So. Yeah. Uh, did I hear you right? Though we're gonna, we're, so we're gonna do, we're gonna start Matthew, and then we're gonna quit for three weeks. Mm -hmm. No, we're not gonna quit for a week. All of us during that interim are gonna be reading scripture. <laughs> <laughs> don't, for, don't, don't forget, I'm a Baptist. I've already read it all. Oh, <laughs> you you think you have? God, <laughs> among all the other things, you can't talk with Baptists about. One of them is science. One of them is science. Oh, <laughs> I know. I, will we miss each other when we're... Barbara, what do you say? What do you say? I'm okay for either the third or the tenth. Then let's go for the third. I mean, let's get back. It's scripture. <laughs> it's scripture. Um, Fred's got to Fred's going to help teach the class. <laughs> Did you hear that, Fred? No problem. <laughs> hey, Bob, this is Julie. I thought it was going to be tonight, Matthew, so I'm going to get off. No, no, no. Come Listen, we're, ty we're tying Chesterton up. It would be good for you to hear it. But it's. But but it's I don't know anything about Chesterton. I haven't read him. All the more reason for staying on. <laughs> but up, up to you. you if, you're, if you're uncomfortable, you go ahead. 
Are you are you gonna click off or stay? I'll just see what how we how it say. I mean, if I'm totally lost, then I'll get off. Okay, I think you won't be, but we'll. And if you do, I just want to say have a really a blessed Christmas. Have a good Christmas. Thank you. And um, if we if you don't stay to the end, have a good Christmas, and we'll see you first week of January. Okay. And just so everybody knows, we're doing Matthew and John in Revelation, and that's it. That's it, unless anybody wants to go back and do Hamlet or Lear. I think Tracy might be in favor of doing Lear again. But, um, And I, I think I've told you before, the, one of the things that I want to do in that first meeting when we do scripture is look at the opening of each of the four Gospels. Because I was blown away when I looked at them in, in this context. So, but, but our focus will be Matthew. I'll have to break it down for you then. I, maybe three weeks, four weeks see how we go together okay but three or four weeks on each of the gospels okay will be our tentative plan um is that it um i can't read my writing um i think that's it so um any prayer requests we've got a number here um, but any prayer requests going into next week? So next week, next week, um, let's plan to do the first third of Matthew. See how it goes. If we need to slow down and take more time, we will. If if we can cover that, we will. But let's let's plan to spend three or four weeks on Matthew. Okay. Any prayer requests? Okay, just so everybody knows, um, I'm going to include in our prayers tonight friends who were with us last night, a um, young couple that we're fond of and very, very serious. They, they wanted to talk about Trinity and in the context of diversity and unity in our country and how divisive diversity is. And uh, But the young woman was looking at in terms of the Trinity and I was so proud of her that she would do something like that. I don't think enough Catholics look at the world in terms of eternal realities. Um, the Trinity, the Incarnation. Sadly we separate those. I, I hope this class has closed that gap son. Um, but anyway she um, she went in for a procedure. Um, she and her husband have been trying to get pregnant for some time and there have been complications and um, so the procedure went well she's going to meet with a doctor on Wednesday to see what to do about a polyp but and Karen saw us on Saturday and um, she went in for a procedure today um, umbilical hernia. yeah an umbilical hernia and um, it was a little bit strange for me um, I mean, it just shows you what we don't know about each other, all of us. I have always been impressed with her as being a pretty tough woman. Um, I, I think I've told you the story when we first met. It was years ago in a mass, and she happened to be in the pew, and and I maybe it was a sign of peace, I can't remember, or maybe exchanging old greetings or something. But I shook her hand, 
and I rarely feel men, and handshakes are not small to me. I mean, I, I ask our grandchildren, you know, the young boys, to give a pretty, I mean, I squeeze their hand to give a pretty good handshake. Karen almost crushed my hand. <laughs> she, she has just got one strong grip, and I've always thought of her as being really tough, but it was clear she was a little bit nervous about this procedure, so um, I hope it went well, and and um, I'd like to include her in our prayers. So, okay. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and for your presence through the day, most especially for um, the gift of yourself at the Mass and your words. This is the beginning of Advent. It's a little Lent, um, but it's a time of preparation and self-discipline. So I ask a special grace for all of us um, to take seriously fasting. Um, you say that the two ways of um, dealing with our sins are prayer and fasting. Um, and so I'd like to ask for a special grace for all of us to take seriously and not just do a fast. What's the matter with this? Um, 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 but to do it joyfully. To be glad to give up something for you and more especially for each other because I think sometimes we take that for granted. Help us to give up meals occasionally. Do away with a meal. Stop picking. Do away with a meal. But do it for somebody we love, our spouses, our children, and always um, for you, to be glad to give something up to be with you. So um, let a, break, a grace be given to all of us so that we can do that and be glad, all in preparation for Christmas morning when we celebrate your coming to us again. Um, I offer or ask for a special grace for Abby. Um, um, help prepare her and let things go well in her meeting with the doctor on Wednesday. Um, if it can be done, um, let she and Justin get pregnant again. And ask a special prayer also, a grace for Karen. Um, help her in her recovery from today's procedure. Let her heart be quiet. Surround her with your protection. Um, let nothing harmful come to her in this recovery. Help her to recover her strength and join us next week. Um, and I ask for special prayers for all of those loved ones in our heart, particularly in our families who are struggling with things particularly at this time in Christmas time because expectations are so high. Help us keep quiet hearts, be glad, no matter what's going on, trust in you. These are our prayers. We offer them in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, fourth section of Burt Norton. I should have assigned this to you guys as homework. 
It's the shortest section, I think, in all the quartets, so it's, it, um, it's funny to look at it, but I'm not going to even do a review. I just want to say that the part of the beauty in this, and, and I think most of you wouldn't appreciate this, you just, you know, you don't go to poetry the way I do, or maybe, not yet, or... Um, Eliot was influenced by the French symbolists who, who had a knack for presenting an image. Listen to this very closely, everybody. For presenting an image in a way that implied a concept without making the concept clear. So instead of making a conceptual statement that we could grasp with our minds, they would present an image. But they do it in a poetic line with their music, so that line would resonate. Um, it would be, um, what's the word, evocative. It would arouse strong feelings because of the music, the power of the poetry, the, the music of the line. But there'd be no statement to accompany it. We'd be left with, it's a little bit like a haiku, Japanese haiku. You'd be left with this, but it's not Eastern in that sense at all. But we'd have this image that, that seemed to, because of the poetic line, seemed to convey a power greater than the image warranted. And Eliot grew as a poet and learned to master that, so he'll bring that in occasionally to his poetry, and he does here. So keep that in mind. Remember he's been talking about time and the fact that if all time is eternally present, it's not redeemable. Um, humankind cannot bear very much reality. Um, he's talked about the two ways, um, before and after, and this um, strange sense of time in the present moment when we have this still point experience and the meaning of it explodes. It's something larger going on than we can account for. Um, at the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshness, neither from nor towards. At the still point there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity. He's not talking about fixity. Where past and future are gathered, neither movement from or towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance. Remember, all of you, if that seems confusing, because the origins you all know, you experience in Dante's Pierdiso. Remember when Dante and Beatrice were going up um, the heavens and they reached the back of the earth. And at that point, Dante's looking at Beatrice. She looks down and he sees, I think if I remember, through her eyes. He may be looking back. He may be looking back. He looks back and according to a physical, temporal grasp of the world, the earth is standing still with all the planets revolving around it, right? Until you get to the prima mobile, which is a crystalline sphere, it's not a physical sphere, which is in God's mind, and it's by means of that that um, motion is imparted to the universe. Okay, so, and even if the, our concept of the universe changes, it wouldn't change Dante's grasp of it. It's that God is outside like the roots of a tree, um, create, having created this thing and keeping it alive. So all motion has its origins in God. But if you look at the earth from the outside, the earth is still, it's fixed, it's not moving, with all the planets going around them until you get to the prima mobile, which is moving the fastest. Okay? That's the physical view. 
if you look at it spiritually from the perspective of heaven, what you see is the very opposite. It's the reverse. If you look, if you look into the universe and follow the, or, the orbit of the planets to the center, what you find at the center of the universe is a still point moving so fast it's standing still. That still point, and it's not fixed, that still point is God. It's Dante's symbolic way of showing that God is present everywhere. And I think I read that to you. The Elliot will come to it again, and, and I'll and I'll slow down and comment it. You know, without that still point, there could be nothing could hold its place or proportion or balance in the universe. <coughs> Dante gives an example of it. I'll just give you one. If dancers are dancing, twirling, flipping, you know, whatever they're doing. If they ever lose a sense of that still point, that balance, they'll collapse in a fall. That point of equipoise, of holding things together, is present everywhere in an infinite number of ways. Remember, it, originally we got this from Plato and then in Boethius, because remember, Boethius' image of the circle, at the circumference everything is going as fast as it can wildly. We can't keep up with the parts. It's only as you get close to that center the still point that you can begin to see the whole of it. It's there that our mind grasps holds and we see differently. Okay? So that still point is the is one of the, the major image of the quartets. So it's always there, it's present in everything, so no even though we don't see it, it's implied. And here in part four Elliot is giving us images that imply that, okay? Section 4, Burt Norton. Time and the bell have buried the day, the black cloud carries the sun away. Will the sunflower turn to us, with a clematis stray down, bend to us, tendril and spray, clutch and cling? It's wonderful, it's a question. He doesn't answer it. But the question is, is asking, is there an order to these things? I mean, you all know that a sunflower um, moves with the path of the sun because it's always moving towards light. So they're related in a dance. They're always together. So he's asking, will these things happen? I mean, he's raising a question. Is, will things collapse into chaos or is there an order? Time of the bill. And, and notice the rhyme scheme. It's, it's so much closer and it's, it's a way of giving a greater force to the line than the lines we've been reading because none of them have rhymed this closely before. Time and the bell have buried the day, the black cloud carries the sun away. Will the sunflower turn to us with a clematis stray down, bend to us, tendril and spray clutch and cling? Chill fingers of you be curled down on us after the kingfisher's wing has answered light to light and is silent, the light is still at the still point of the turning world. When we come back on the third, I'm giving you a quiz on the meaning of those lines. Actually I'm not. I'm gonna ask I'm gonna ask Tracy to explain them. <laughs> I have um with her love of art. Howard book. You have what? Oh, Howard's book on, yeah. 
So I got this. <laughs> oh, then you haven't read Howard's book because you've got to have your own. I want to hear from, now. I really do want to. His is not the definitive answer on on Burton Norton. I've read it, and I think it's. And by the way, I think it's actually good. But I, but I'd still like to hear you because I believe that you you'd have something to say that Howard would enjoy um, on that. But. I've got it. <laughs> what to do with you guys? What to do? Okay, um, let's start. Okay. Um, a couple of things before we begin. This is going to be a summary night. I have started to put together a whole list of quotes. I was going to start tonight reading passages from Chesterton just to pull together what to me are memorable quotes. They're, they contain a principle, they go to a principle. I love them, you know, reading him again after a, a long um, hiatus. hiatus. Thanks. Um, it was just a pleasure to read them again and I wanted to put them together just for you to have. I'll put them online, but but instead of going through the quotes, I think I'd, what I'd like to do is summarize the last couple of chapters and then go back to our question um, that I put to you last week, which is, what would happen at a practical level if any of us, if our church, gave up its central dogmas, its key dogmas, okay? That's where I want to go tonight. Um, but I'd like to make a general, couple of general statements about Chesterton and then take some of the uh, specific ideologies he took on back, you know, back in 1919, uh, 1920 when he wrote this book. One of the most important things to remember about um, orthodoxy... Mark, are you still here? I don't have your picture. Yeah, okay. it should be on. Okay, good, good. Is it not there? It's. I don't have your. I've got a circle. I, do you guys have a picture, Mark? Yeah. Oh. Yes. Okay. Uh -huh. it, yeah. Something's going on with. Um, one of the most important things to take away from this um, is that um, Christianity rests on a solid grasp of reason. Um, what Chesterton does is show how rich, fecund um, reason is, ex its explanatory powers, that it, it can open the world to us at a level of reason so that we can engage each other at that level. Um, and it's a wonderful contribution to the Catholic faith because in, in, in particularly in the way that he gives it, he says it's all in defense of the Apostles' Creed. He showed, this work shows better than any single work I know, I'm sure there are others that I don't know of, but it, it certainly shows better than any work I've ever read um, how compatible faith and reason are. He, he, he does nothing on the basis of faith. Um, at one point in one of his arguments he says that you can't reason if reason doesn't rest on something because he makes it very clear that reason is capable of destroying itself. One of his great concerns is the skepticism our age. That, I mean, it's truly, it marks our age. It's a, it's a bad fault that people can do away with the mind. They can so doubt the mind that they want to destroy its powers. They can take their lives. Why live? Why reason? 
people can use reason to justify suicide. So Chesterton's quite clear in this. Reason is capable of destroying itself. If it doesn't rest on something else, and I don't think by that he means the faith of the Catholic Church, but he means something greater than reason, reason can be destructive. So he says that in the book, but at the same time, everything he does takes the form of a rational argument. He doesn't make an appeal to faith anywhere in the book. And he takes on every one of the major isms of the modern world. I mean, he has encountered feminine full force the way we have, and he hasn't encountered um, critical race theory the way we have. Um, But every one of the dominant theories that have marked our age were in their beginnings then. Because remember, they came out of the sciences, largely out of the sciences at the end of the 19th century. So, materialism, evolution, nominalism, progress, pragmatism, the worship of the will. You know, those are Arianism, um, one at the end. Those are all major dogmas. This is so important. Every one of them is a major dogma of the modern mind. And Chesterton refutes every one of them at at a level of pure reason, practical reason. He could not have done that using just faith. A fundamentalist is going to have his hands tied because he won't, he won't be able to use reason to answer any of them because his, his belief is that he thinks reason is corrupt, that without faith we can't do anything, and with faith our, reason may, our powers of reason may be enlivened some, but he's certainly not going to give reason the place that the Catholic world does. Chesterton could not have answered any of them just on, faith, on, on a basis of faith alone. His arguments are all rational. So he's challenging our mind constantly to look at our world to see what our powers of reason can do and whether they line up with our faith. Um, I want to just take a couple of them tonight, just to summarize. Materialism, (laughs) he makes clear, is inadequate as a philosophy because it makes no place for miracles. And his contention is that... um, Anybody believing in miracles can continue to believe in, in matter. It doesn't prevent somebody from believing in matters. But it offers a richer life because it, it's open to the possibility of a life beyond to miracles and afterlife. The materialist won't because the materialist, by virtuous first premise, shuts that down. He says this is all there is. So that's one. Evolution. Um... Um, is dangerous because, in a sense, it takes away the notion of form, which is principle to our understanding. The, um, there, there may be superficial resemblances between an ape and a man, but the form, even though they're physically resemblance, are not the same because the form of man involves a rational soul. We have a rational soul, an ape can't. We can reflect on ourselves. We can say, I. We can conceive of a self engaging with the world. An ape can't. If all things are constantly changing, all things are in flux, if they're all evolving, if they have no form, we're undermining from the outset any attempt to understand all species. Because what defines a species, that by the by the way, that's its that's its 
nature, is a form. It's by virtue of its species, its form, that we put it in a definition. Basketball is a sport. That does. That word sport is the species, its form. It's on the basis of that that we give a definition to something. Um, if you take that away, we have no, understand, no way of understanding the nature of man. Because it, what he is today is what he wasn't 500 years ago or a billion years ago or whatever the evolutionist is going to say. Um, a theory of progress. He's arguing convincingly that if we don't have a fixed ideal, if there isn't a law to our nature, then there's no meaning to the world. If everything's chaos, it doesn't matter what we do. For there to be any meaning in the world, there has to be a fixed dogma, a belief, something that's not changing. It's on the basis of that we can move. It's on the basis of losing that that we can feel dread or sorrow or loss. Take all of that away, take any sense of final ends away, and there can be no romance, no adventure. The very existence of romance and adventure um, implies something fixed, something against which we measure ourselves so that we can lose something or gain something. If there's nothing there, we have nothing to lose. I'll just take one more, the, the theory of the primacy of the will, which was Nietzsche's great. Chesterton makes the point. Um, the will cannot be the supreme power for a couple of reasons. One is the will by itself can't direct itself. Nietzsche's philosophy, Chesterton would say rightly, is anti-intellectualist. If you don't have a mind guiding the will, where does the will go? How does it know that what it's doing won't lead to bad? Whatever power he seems to give it is going to be taken away. We, we learned that from Boethius. It's one of his principal arguments. Equally important, if, um, if you to use the will means the minute you make a choice to do one thing, you eliminate all others. If I decide to marry Suzanne, um, it means I can't have a relationship with a thousand other women. Or if we decide to have a child, you know, it, um, it means we can't do other things. The will by its very nature is limiting. It's, it's, it's interesting, it's, it seems to be one of the reasons the Buddhists don't like it, because they saw in the act of choosing an evil that it always drew us some bad in the, in the world by a choice. Um, so Chesterton has taken on every one of the dogmas that offers itself as being liberal, scientific, enlightened, progressive. Those are the words he uses. You know, in, in the next to the last chapter, he talks about the spirit of liberalism, and it certainly doesn't have the meaning then that it has for us, but the connection is real. It says, every one of these modern dogmas presents itself as being liberal, that they will all free human beings. <laughs> Behind them all is this notion to get people out of Christianity, this superstitious, fearful way of relating to the world. Get that out of the world so men are no longer fearful, because that's the only reason they go to religion, they're afraid. Or they're superstitious. They're believing in something they can't believe in because the materialist dogma, by its, by its very premises, says that's all there is. There's only matter. So he's taken every one of 
the modern dogmas, which offers itself as being a source of freeing man and showing that, as a matter of fact, none of them do, that in some way they put us in chains. I want to go to the end of, uh, I'm not going to look at it specifically, but at the end of chapter 8, Romance of Orthodox, he lists um, a number of the liberal philosophies, monism, pantheism, necessity, predestination, and Arianism. I want to ta- I want to tackle Arianism just for one second because it's a way of going to my uh, real question, um, the, the question in which I'd like to tie up our work together on Chesterton. You know that Arius said that Christ was created. He, he wasn't all God and all man. He was created by God. So he took away the divine nature of man. And Chesterton puts forth an argument. I'm going to go back to it because I want to get to this general question that we've been left with. But let me use that as a jumping off point for my question. Let We can start with Arianism. We can start with whatever you want. But I would like to take the, the next half hour, the next 45 minutes, whatever time we have, with this question. Um, he, he mentions Emerson, Thoreau, modern liberal thinkers who say, who claim, that if Catholicism would simply get rid of its dogmas, it could be like other religions and we'd all get along. That's one of his major arguments. The last, the, the third of the last, second of the last chapters focus on that. These people will say, get rid of these. Um, because all men are the same, we all live under, let's live by universal good. And we'll all get along. Why do you why do you continue to obnoxiously, stubbornly hold on to these dogmas that you have, the sacraments, these acts of superstition? You walk into a church and there's a piece of wafer there, and you take it in your mouth, acting like it's something it's not. What are you doing? Or put water on somebody and and go through the motions that something's happened. Um, these are all relics from a past. They're all um, observances, superstition observances. You know, they're they're foolish. So we can take Arianism. We can start there, in, which basically means Christ is a human being. He's a buddy. Um, people can believe he's our savior, but still treat him in an Arian way. He's our buddy. Um, he's. Um, can't remember the words in the mass. I meant to write them down, but I was just—they just jumped out at me. During the act of consecration, there's this phrase of the glory. I'm not going to get it. The glory and the light of the heavens in Christ. That in Him is the splendor of everything. We would—you would have gotten it from Dante because I, I remember making such a point of it. It was so important. It seems to me one of the things we can't miss. I asked this question we did Dante. Why did not Christ greet Dante in the um, earthly paradise? Why did Beatrice, why was Beatrice the one who met him? For goodness sake, he's gone through purgatory. He um, went through purgatory. He's on his way to heaven. Why isn't Christ there to greet him? Why does Beatrice greet him 
and go through the heavens, that long journey, before he finally gets to his vision of God, the Trinity. And I, the answer I offered was, because it was only in going through the entire heavens that we'd understand the splendor of the Logos, that Christ carried within him this divine nature, and there's a danger in just reducing him to man. He's both fully God, fully man, and if he's fully God, and he's the Word, the Logos, he carries the splendor, the glory of everything, the whole universe. To make him a man and take that away is to reduce him to something he's not. So, um, you can take Arianism, you can take, let's, let me name a couple, the Incarnation, the Trinity, um, the indwelling, the perichoresis, the indwelling of people, the Immaculate Conception, Virgin Birth, Take any of them. The question that I'm asking right now, let's take let's start at the center with Christ. With Arian, Arianism, with the incarnation. If we take away so Emerson's view was not Trinitarian. Emerson Emerson, one of the great um, reformers in the New England world, in the modern world, it really is in threshold. In fact, he, he helps open the door in the modern world. He's Unitarian. He turns away and says, there's only one. Let's all be one. Let's, let's be united. Get, let's get rid of these differences because they're in the way. So let's take the Incarnation. If we do away with the Incarnation, what are the practical implications? What would be the practical implications of that for our lives? Would it make any difference in the way we lived our lives? What's your response? I'd like to take several of the mysteries, the Incarnation, the, um, the Trinity, we can go anywhere you want, um, the Resurrection, the Annunciation, the Virgin Birth, whatever, whatever. but let's start with that, the Incarnation, because that goes right to the heart of most of our lives. Take away the dogma that Christ is both God, fully God, and fully man. And and so become a Unitarian for a moment. You know, he's just, he's man. What would the implications of it, practical implications of that be for human beings? What difference does it make? Because lots of people are saying, get rid of it, it's in the way. Tracy. Well, I think Chesterton bring, brings this up, and I think he's saying that, um, I don't know exactly what he's saying, but I picked up that there would be, um, that the Unitarian, you know, like the one leads to or opens up the door to cruelty. Why? Uh, well, see, that's the part I don't understand. Well... <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, I think Chesterton is uh, saying, mm, well, my impression is like if you have a one, a one God, it's kind of like his way or the highway <laughs> is where in that. Um, that wouldn't be so with Christ, with the Trinity? 
Christ makes clear if you don't do certain things, you're going to hell. So it's not as if you can do anything you want. No, no, of course. Yeah, no, I knew that was going to sound that way. I mean, um, I don't know. It's just the impression I get from Chesterton is that a, a one God can, like, maybe it becomes, maybe it's not his way or the highway, but the per human's way or the highway. Believe this one God or else. Um, and that's where the cruelty comes in. I don't know. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can anybody, or the other impression I get is that the God, um, there's no love. It's like a, um, a, I don't a relationship of owing, oh, oh something. Which we, we do owe. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Barbara, can you can you help out? I not on that thread, but he has to be God and man in order to pull this salvation off. He he can't be just one or the other. If he's just God, then he doesn't really connect with us in a way that um, that we need to be connected to. If he's just man, then he's like any other man, even if he's special. So I think he has to be completely God and completely man. And Chesterton also talks about that particular point, um, and he draws it back to the contradictions, I think, in um, Christ's um, uh, language is what I want to say, but that's not quite right. Um, like his uh, ability, his way of speaking, um, and the power, and the like you said, the splendor in the way that he spoke and the things that he said. Um, he cites, for example, that um, Christ's words in the Bible have a different style than the words about him. The words that he says has a different style than the words about him. Yeah. Um, and the, he draws it back to that contradictions that he was talking about in a previous chapter about how Christianity is like can be two opposite things side by side at the same time. And he, mm -hmm. I think he puts Christ in that yeah. as the ultimate contradiction. Yep. Yeah. 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 I don't know what that means beyond that. I mean, I'm just telling you what I understood from reading. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's good. Yeah. And, and he also, it's also in that context where he talks about um, God and Christ as the great rebels. You know, that in, in because of what you just described, it, it makes what they do different from anything anybody else has ever done or anybody else could ever do. Um, Mark, can you have do you have anything to offer this? The what would happen if we took away the incarnation? You're probably going to get mad at me, Bob. Uh, <laughs> I would never ask these questions. You would never ask me questions. Don't ask. These no, no, questions. not like these. Oh, you don't sit. You, you don't question God. That's like rule number one. 
okay? If you do, you get your ass beat by priests or nuns. Oh, God. So you don't go there. Get past that. I'm asking a question. Do you have, can you, what's your, I really want your mind on this. Put that out. What? Uh, I, by the way, I'm thinking about Abraham questioning God pretty seriously outside of Sodom, but let that go. I'm, I'm asking for you. I, I'd really love to have your mind. If you took, I'm not not get with get rid of the past. Just step into this question now. What would happen at a practical level to all of us if we got rid of that dogma? If you get rid of any of the dogmas, doesn't really matter which one. Some are probably a little more important than others, but they're all intertwined. If you get rid of any of them, the faith falls apart. The entire church falls apart. But I, I mean, yes. Make it concrete. Can you how? How, what would have, my question is, what practical implications would it have for us? How would it affect our lives at a practical level? What would it mean, what, what difference would it make for us? I, I can't speak for anybody but me. I mean, uh, if, if what I see happening um, within the Vatican right now, let's say, that they're trying to just destroy a lot of things, you're going to see a whole lot of people leave the church. You're going to see possibly another schism, um, and you're going to see. And, and and the weird thing about all of the heresies, throughout all of the councils that have been argued and argued, the split was always toward something easier, easier for men to deal with, right? Mm -hmm. Because. Nobody, and especially, I guess, now in a modern world, being an American, right? I'm an American. I'm the best there is. I ain't answering to nobody, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. That only gets you so far. When you die and you stand before the Lord and you give an account of your life and you are judged, the answer is black and white. It's heaven or hell. Have a nice day. Right? There isn't any... Purgatory is kind of heaven, I consider, right? But th there is no reasoning, there is no arguing, there is no discussion. You're not going to, you know, talk God out of it, right? You get what you earn. And that's all there is to it. And people don't want to deal with that. I, I think on a human, you know, we want to be in control of our own destiny. We want to be in control of how I feel and what is morally and ethically right for me, <laughs> no matter what, you know, no matter right. who else. right. And I think every one of the heresies, when you start to break them down, it's man shifting to something that's easier for them to deal with. They don't want to say, well, God made it hard. I really don't want to be that. I want to be in charge yeah. of that. Or yeah. I disagree for whatever, yeah. you know, whatever they want to disagree. Yeah. But it's making it easier on themselves, right? It's, it's one, you know, I, anybody who tries to put words in God's mouth, you know, well, God would do this. I hate the phrase, what would Jesus do? I hate that phrase, because <laughs> how dare you try and think what Christ would do? Well, we see him doing a lot. I mean, we can, let me, let yeah. me follow, let me, if I can, um, follow up with that, Mark, because um, I agree, agree with um, what you're saying. It, but I want to try to enlarge it some. It, it doesn't just make it easier for men in the sense that it makes it easier for our wills. It makes it easier for our minds. If you look at the major heresies, along the lines that Mark's saying. Every one of them is, is a, a rationalization away from a mystery. And I want to try to be fair to people here. Um, 
I, and I hope that's clear, because we already see it in, in so much of what Christ does with the disciples, so it should be no mystery to us. I mean, you can look at the, at the, the doctrines coming out of the Reformation from Calvin and Luther. You know, they're, they're rationalizations. What they do is take us farther away from a mystery. And it shouldn't surprise us. If you look at a number of the scenes with Christ when he's with the disciples, the disciples are going to show us a sign. You know, he just performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000. And Christ is, and they're asking for a sign. A miracle just took place. Repeatedly, they, they do that a number of times. They keep asking questions that push Christ in the direction of a rationalization, something their minds can grasp onto. And let, let me go even to the heart of it. In the Copernican Temple, a year before the end, when he's with the disciples doing the bread of life discourse, and he's saying, I am the bread of life, unless you eat of me, you know, unless you drink. I mean, that's central to the Eucharist. All the people who were present in that temple were disciples. And a lot of them got up and left. The, the John's description of them, they were murmuring because the doctrine was too hard for them. So it's along Mark's lines. It's not just that um, the heresies make life easier for our wills. You know, we don't have to do, we don't have to ask as much of ourselves. Or we, we won't let God ask as much as he does. It also affects our minds, that the tendency of our mind is to move away from mystery to get what we can hold on to. And the disciples were doing that a lot. You know, I mean, think, I mean, Christ gets irritated at, I think he gets angry at him a couple of times, you know, how long do I have to put up with this, you know, these, these, these are many loves. These, these are going to be the, the priests, the, you know, the, the first sacramental order of the church. He's teaching them what they're going to do. And they're not even getting it. Oh, God. So what Mark is talking about is, has a rich dimension. It involves both our wills and our intellects. Every, every heresy moves us in the direction of something we can more easily grasp and in his terms have control of with our mind. We don't have to deal so much with mysteries. Um, let me put it this way, because I'm, I'm, I want to try to stay with if I can. Both Islam, Judaism, and Islam believe in a monotheistic God, one God. The Muslims believe that the Trinity is a heresy. That's their attitude. The, the, the idea that God could have a companion, that there's somebody equal to him, is shocking to them. It's offensive. So for the Jewish mind and the Islamic mind, there's only one God. What are the implications? And here, let me put it different. Let me extend it if I can be clear. According to the biblical account for all those three major religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, yeah, our God goes back to Abraham and the beginnings. And our, the, the, one of the beliefs that we share is we are made in God's image. Right? That's fundamental to all those three phases. What's the difference believing in one God, as the Jews do and the Muslims, and in a trinity one God, three persons. What difference would that make in living our lives? Is where I'm go. I want to get there. Um, somebody 
get us down to a nitty-gritty practical level here of the way it would affect our action. Fred, Francis, are you, I, I've lost your picture, are you, are, are you guys still with us? Yes, we're still here. Um, do you, do I, you guys want to jump in on this? Well, I, I think I mentioned, I think I mentioned this the last time we were together, but to me, you know, the, the incarnation, the God made flesh, the, the Christ was both fully human, fully divine. For me, at least personally, is probably the most important dogma of our faith, because if you if you take the fall as as being real, if Christ were fully human and not divine then I don't know that we would really ever believe that our sins have been forgiven. You know, if some human just died on the cross, well, how do we, how do we translate that to the fact that God has forgiven us for the fall? If he is fully divine, he can't die on the cross. He can't kill God. So what did all that really mean? But the fact that he, and, and you know, I think we've mentioned this, many times before a human by themselves is incapable of forgiving our sin against God I mean we don't have that ability I mean who are we to presume that we've been forgiven if if God isn't part of that element so for for me the fact that that Christ is fully human and fully divine and died on a cross for our sins is the only way that it would have ever convinced me personally that you know my sins were forgiven I mean I think that is the most fundamental aspect of our Catholic faith and you know it's a Baptist I I have to admit, I, I struggled with the concept of the Trinity for a while, because you grow up Baptist, there there is you know one God and and then there's the Son, but I I, I get it in the sense that what we are, what we are seeing in the Trinity is different reflections of of God, that they're they're different and yet still one God, so. You know, if you if you look at the Jewish face, at least we we still only have one God, but we're looking we're looking at Him in 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 different ways. We're looking at the Son as a reflection of God's own image to Him, and that He came down to Earth as a God, as a fully God into a fully human form, so that a we could even begin to relate to what Christ was telling us, and B, that we could ultimately be salvaged. And the fact that the Holy Spirit, and, and that was given to us uh, as, as a guardian, you know, uh, could, only, could only occur and could only be meaningful in that regard if it was, in fact, part of God. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it's the love between God and the Son then makes it something truly worth believing in. So for me, um, 
you know, it's the only way it works. And if you take that away, we don't really have a faith that's really any different than than other faiths. Fred, take take it one more step. Will you? So take away the faith in terms that you put it. What would it? What would it? What would it mean? What are the practical implications for our relations with each other? If there's if there were if there were no Trinity, you mean? Yeah. Or, take away, or or what specifically? All of the Trinity. When you say we'd have no faith, either one. Take away the uh, Trinity. Take away as you well, put, in, any in terms of, it. of relationship with each other. We have no, you know, no still point, no unchanging guideline to use to help each other stumble through this world that we live in. I mean, what do we refer to? If you're just out there and there's no Trinity, there's no Christ that was once fully human and and fully divine, then how do we relate to each other in terms of right and wrong of of an ultimate belief that you know this world is not my this world is not our final destination i don't know how many times i've heard people i know you know we get into a situation that's frustrating um it's not going the way we we wanted to or there's something happened in the world that i have no explanation other than Boethius why it took place and and I and I've, had people look at, I've, I've looked at people and I've had people look at me and say you know what this world is not our final destination and the other one will say you're right let's move on you know something there are some things in this world that we will never ever be able to rationalize or why it happened you know, I, one of the reasons that I love Boethius this much is, as I, I dealt for years with this question: Why do bad things happen to good people, or why do good things happen to bad people? I mean, if you don't, if you don't have that fundamental belief system in place, I don't know how we, yeah, I don't know how we relate to each other. All along, it's just right. utter chaos. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how we relate to each other at all because if we're made in God's image. That means we're social creatures, and and we reach out for other people. Um, I mean, there are monks in the desert and that kind of thing, but they're the exception. Most people are social; they want to be with other people. Can you hear, Doc? Can you all hear? Yes. Um, and I've always assumed that the reason we do that is because. God is communal. God is social. He has the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, he's not isolated, alone. Um, that's what we would be if there was no if there was no Trinity. We'd be isolated, alone, um, and God would be infinitely further off than He is now. Let me let me offer you something that took place in our conversation last night with this couple. The the young woman was really upset. She'd been thinking about the Trinity a lot, and she was thinking of in terms of the conflict between diversity and unity. And her experience. So I'm trying to get to a practical level here. I want to get to relationships and marriages most of all, but relationships for sure. She was really upset because wherever she looked, she saw diversity as being a divisive thing. 
you know, the people were using it when, as a matter of fact, what it would do would um, affirm one group at the expense of another. So there was a loss of unity. So the whole question came down to how do we how do we deal with this tension between unity on the one hand, because if, if everything's just unity, everybody's made the same. And the whole push today, or a large push for a long time, has been diversity to try to recognize differences between people. The danger of doing that is that you can separate people and they can affirm their own identity at the expense of other people. That's been a serious political problem for a long time. I believe it's, I believe we're at a crisis with it right now, myself, but Anyway, we were talking about the Trinity, and I laid out Thomas's um, understanding of the Trinity. You guys have heard it from me before, but let me just go through it as briefly as I can, because I want to get to a practical level. Remember, according to Thomas and the, the teachings, traditional teachings of the Catholic Church, when God conceives of himself, he conceives as an idea, an image of himself. It's not something created apart from him. It's begotten in the sense that it's one with him. So it perfectly shares his nature. He's all God, one. Unbegotten, right? He didn't have a beginning like a made thing. So his conception of himself is his son, begotten. The son is the image of the father. In me you see the, you know, all of that. The love between the two is the spirit. And once again, the spirit is whole. It's one with them. It's not a part. So the notion of parts which is so whole and parts to us, which is material, doesn't apply there. And Thomas makes the argument, rightly I think, that in the Trinity, one is not less than two and two is not more than one. Right? Because the Son is perfectly one with the Father. He's whole. Same with the Spirit. That's why we can say one God, three persons. And the idea of the perichoresis, which is an idea I think our church needs to recover pretty seriously, particularly because of what's going on in relationships today and marriages. Um, the indwelling is perfect. The Son is one with the Father and Spirit. The Spirit is one, you know, they're all one with each other. That's why we can say one God, three persons. Most people can't wrap their head around that. And what they're going to do is move towards a rationalization that will do away with that mystery. The young man last night said that he thought the whole power or the whole strength of the Trinity rested in the unity. And I said to him, I thought he was absolutely wrong. The truth of the Trinity is those two things have to be together. I mean, Mark's description of you lose one, you, you know, they're two entwined. Because there's no way you can separate the persons from their unity. The Son is one with the Father completely, even if he's different in relationship. The, father, the Father's original, the Son is derivative. The, the Spirit is the, the unity, the love between them. Um, if you take away the persons in favor of the unity, you're moving towards a monotheist, you're moving towards Judaism and Islam. The interesting thing about Christianity is that, that we live in the presence of this profound mystery. Most people don't want to deal with it. Judaism doesn't. Islam doesn't. And I'm going to go to a practical level right now. The practical implications of that, going back to what Fred said a while ago, Christ, this stuns me. I mean, I can't, I can't hear it without, without getting upset at masses. I mean, genuinely, just so troubled. 
whenever we have those scenes in readings in which Christ is healing somebody, he even did it in the temple, you know, with the withered hand, when he's healing somebody and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are finding fault with him, they cannot, will not get past a rationalizing habit of mind. They want to make it black-white. Or, or when he forgave the sins, and they said, you can't do that, only a God can do that. And every one of those, even when the disciples left him in the, in the Bread of Life discourse, the murmuring disciples, what you've got are instances of a black-white mentality who make everything one or another, and it's on that basis that they do what they do. At the center of our faith is this extraordinary mystery, the unity of divinity and the diversity of persons. You can't take either one away, at one at the expense of another. You can't. If you do that, you strike at the heart of a trinity, you're going you're gonna to slip into a heresy. So let me go back to my question. The Jewish people do not believe in a Trinitarian God. They believe in one God. In a, if we're made in God's image, we were made, we were made to love and be loved. I'll take it a step farther. We were meant to be indwelling perfectly with each other, to be one with another. That's our God the perichoresis, the indwelling of people. That means to indwell, if I can get dark here for a minute, that means to perfectly indwell with another means risking taking into ourselves all those things about another person we don't like. That's why the Catholic Church holds us to our vows. Because the whole effort to do that is very, very hard. To indwell, to be one, to be one flesh. The Jewish people don't believe in the Trinity, neither do the Islamic people. What are the implications of that for the way they live out their lives, the way they relate to each other? Um, I don't believe, I mean, I'm a little bit ill at ease with that's the way it is and you let it go, because Christ everywhere made it clear we're supposed to take what I'm describing right now to the world, particularly when it's hard. He was, he was never, until the very end, he was never not engaging people. He was using his powers of reason to make arguments, to explain, to critique, to tell stories, to help people see. And it didn't rest. It was, not, it was never contingent on success. We know that because lots of people didn't hear him. As a matter of you know, the story is in his own town. He went to his own town, <laughs> and he could do no miracles there, because everybody thought he was nothing more than, you know, Mary and Joseph's son. So, how open people were was not a small thing. But his whole effort was to go to the work, take a cross, while he went out to bear people, and he asked us to do the same. If love is a trinitarian. Trinitarian by nature, and I'm arguing it is, we're meant to love and be loved. There's no way to do that that doesn't involve a cross. Because it means being wounded by other people, taking them in. We just can't turn away, we just can't walk away. I mean, the whole chest, that whole chapter on enabling, you know, where Chesterton said, um, you know, you, 
the, the, the uh, optimist and the pessimist. Um, <clears throat> if you get too satisfied, you won't do anything. That it was really the lovers who wrecked the world were the only ones who could, you know, do something with it. The saints show us that. All the martyrs show us that. The church calls us to that. So, um, it seems to me that at a practical level, I mean, if I were to, I mean, Susanna and I were talking, I wanted to, do you want to pick that up, Doc, when I s said, what's the differences? If you took away the dogmas, her, 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 you know, the Jewish people love, they're called to love, they're called to show mercy. Islam, in some degree, I, I don't, I'm not familiar enough, but I don't have the sense that mercy is as present to them as, say, it is to the Jewish mind. What did Christ bring to the world that he asked us to live that would make us different from Jewish people or Islam at a purely practical level? The way we relate to each other. Barbara, let me go back to you. I, I may be pressing this too hard. I, the, the interesting thing is we're dealing with both the incarnation and, and Christ being God and man and the Trinity. Because it's really, in some ways, impossible to separate them. But go ahead. Do you have any thoughts on this question that we're wrestling with? How how is how are the beliefs that we how how do they or do they make our life different from the life of somebody who is Jewish or somebody who is Islamic? Otherwise, why have them? Why not? Why not become secular? Why not become Jewish? Why not become? What What are the implications? If we became Jewish, would we lose anything? If we became Islamic, would we? What would we lose? What difference would it make for our lives? If we were to line all of us up on a stage in an audience, everybody would look at us and say, "We all look the same in appearance. We're all humans." What difference does it make in our lives, Barbara? What I see is the difference in how you care and love other people. But I know that some Islamic and some Jewish people also care and love other people. So I don't, I mean, so I don't have an answer to your question. Yeah, the, <laughs> I'm sorry. The, no, no, but the question is, Jan, what's the difference? Just, it's... Because they do love, they, um, um, you know that I've been harping on this for years now, that there is at the center of Christ's life, life a, a great love of the law. He obeyed his Father. He was obedient. He fulfilled all the Ten Commandments. And he said, I came to fulfill the law, not do away with it. But still there's a difference between a Christian who makes that place for a law and somebody who's Jewish or Islamic. What's the difference? Um, Jewish people believe in love, they're called to love. They believe in mercy. So do the Islamic people. If, if there's no different, then there's no reason for us to remain Catholic. There's no reason for us. And the interesting thing to go along with Mark's comment earlier, um, because lots of people have left the Catholic Church in the modern world, the numbers are astounding. Um, the numbers leaving the Protestant Church you know, are, are great. And an interesting question for me is, how, are any of them going to Islam or Judaism? I, I, you know, I, I don't follow those numbers, but it's an increasingly secular world. We put more and more of our faith in the state, not the church. Um, 
um, why not give up our faith and go to, if there's no difference, there's no reason for us not to become Islamic or Jewish or secular. What's the difference? Well, it's hard to talk about uh, Judaism or Islam because we, we aren't those things. So, but it is, but to say, okay, but we do have a different belief. So what does that give us? Um, so the things I've written down, uh, Christ is our redeemer. So we have redemption. What does that mean? And Good. Uh, Chesterton in this whole last bit, whole last chapter is talking, I mean, he ends the book or ends his book on Christ's joy. And, his, his um, mirth, his mirth. And uh -huh. his mirth, yeah, 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 yeah. Which I had to look up. And he... <laughs> Wait, by the way, on that note, sorry, could, I, want, I, want to, I, I want you to stay. It's hard to, it's hard to see Craig being merciful. He is severe, constantly. We don't see him joking. He doesn't tell any jokes. I, I can't remember the description of his laughing. But Chesterton ends the book wondering whether there wasn't something that he would describe as mirth. You know, I, I can't believe Christ didn't have a sense of irony. You know, when he looked around, oh, truly. I mean, you know, this profound, divine kind of irony that, but I'm sorry, T Tracy, go ahead. Sorry, I'm sorry. Well, it, it, I want to refer a couple of more things. So the other thing he talks, which speaks to my, um, uh, this is how I see the world. He talks about the art, the difference between the art of Christianity and Buddhism in particular. And the, the, the depiction of the Christian saint versus the Buddhist saint. And he talks about the Christian saint being taken out of the world and then looking at it with astonishment because it, it's not him. He's not um, the same thing as the other thing. Um, so, and I, we, um, so I think all those things are together somehow, redemption and being out of the world, and then finding joy in that despite the hardships and the suffering of being in the world because physically in the world mm -hmm. um, and then to what Mark said about um, if I'm not going to lose my train of thought Mark what did you say about um, oh shoot come on Mark help her do something I'm here opposite. you said something about um, oh accounting Having to account. Um, and you will be judged. Having to account your life and in relationship to what Fred is saying about being forgiven. So if you're forgiven for a, a sin, how does that go together with being redeemed and accounting? Because the sin is gone. Like the Lord pushes it away. Hell's not empty. As far as the a lot of people who think they're that's not an answer. Answer Tracy's question. And that's not answer Tracy's question. That that's a good question. How do you put those two things together? You don't. It's for God to put together. The answer is very simple. I think hell is going to be very very full, and heaven not as much so. Otherwise, what's the point? If everything is forgiven, well, golly gee, ain't that nice. No, if you've asked for forgiveness... It doesn't mean you're going to get it. Whoa. That's up to God. Whoa, whoa, hold on. Well, Tracy, what's ah, your response? No, no, don't put... Don't, you cannot sit there and say God is always going to forget. Oh. Okay, well, what is... You don't know. I don't know. Then how can you say that? Because you're saying you can't say that. say that. How can you believe anything else? <laughs> I've, got a, I've got an answer, but Tracy, go ahead. 
Well, if Christ is our Redeemer, what does redemption mean? It means if you are worthy, and if Christ finds you worthy, and if God finds you worthy, then maybe, if we believe, we'll get there. I've maybe got an, not. I've, I've got we an answer. Know. I've got an answer. That's but the great mystery. I'm, I'm trying to restrain my... Fred, do you want to do you want to come in here? Or bef- oh, you big chicken. <laughs> <laughs> too many people in the Catholic faith have got this warm fuzzy about you. Yeah. I believe it. I'm going to heaven. Yeah, listen. <laughs> listen, listen. Be, be, be still. Be still. I answered the question, but I'm smart enough to realize <laughs> no. that I didn't give the professor the answer he wanted, so I'm waiting to hear. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Um, I, I'm not sure what that means, but Mark, Mark, hold on. Just it be, if you could restrain yourself just for a minute. I think Tracy's question is a, and a troubling question. I mean, she asks it in a spirit of troubling. I mean, she, I take it to be serious. A couple of things, and, and by the way, just to hold on to this line of thought because I don't want to lose it. The Jews believe in love and mercy. So do the Muslims. Is there a difference in believing? that God so loved his people that he offered himself to answer our sin because we couldn't. So he gave a divine love with the understanding that on the cross he redeemed all of us. That's a given. All of us. Or it's pointless. He redeemed all of us. What's the difference in believing in that kind of love um, or in Judaism, the love of a God that remains removed from the world, who did not allow himself to go to a cross, because the basic fact of Christianity is God allowed him, you know, the violent bared away. God allowed, God loved so that he allowed his back to be put against a wall. He allowed himself to be killed. A God, that's unheard of. What's the difference in believing in that kind of love and the love of the Jewish God or the love of Allah? So it's a basic question. How does that play out in our lives? But let me let me take up Tracy's question and Mark's response. The the dying on the cross was either for all of us or it was for nobody. It couldn't have been just a singular act. But repeatedly, over and over and over again, Christ makes clear, he says it again, um, to the stewards, to the guy who did nothing, go in until you pay the last farthing. He said to another, um, go, to, go where there's going to be fire. He sent a guy to hell. Repeatedly, he's sending people to hell. So if I can use that as the starting point, Tracy, because it's, you know, you're, you're dealing with this question of a God who's our redeemer and a God to whom we have to be accountable. And, and you said, I thought you said when Mark jumped in, or you were going to say, the condition is if we ask for it, because Christ, and, back, and the church makes it clear, we begin every Mass with an act of contrition. Um, we know from the letters, it's a condition. We know from the Gospel, as a matter of fact, it's in John. When, I think it's in John, when he says, if somebody can sin against you seven times, let them come seven, 70, seven times. Let them come 70 times in a day. You're still asked to forgive them. But he said, he said, if they come and ask for forgiveness, forgive them. So, it seems to me, I mean, however vague that is, I mean, ultimate, we know that the ultimate decision is not in our, we can't damn a person, we, we know that God does. But we know that much, that it's really important for us to ask for forgiveness, that's why we go to confession, that's why we begin masses, 
And that's why we go to each other in a spirit of contrition and ask forgiveness from each other. And why we get pardoned. When we do something wrong or something that does something wrong to us, we work on that. We don't, when a murderer commits a murder, we, just don't, we should not send him out on the street again saying, I forgive you. Because, and, and this is, was fundamental to, to uh, um, Dostoevsky. Fundamental to the brothers. It was at the heart of everything Zosima did. Will sending a man to jail change his heart? Zosima's answer to that is no. The state just can't force you to change. You know, but does that mean you take away punishments? It was one of the... You know. So one of the, one of the problems we're left with this in Christianity is, is um, fulfilling the law in love. To bring law and love together. Um, the guy who comes in the wedding feast, Christ sends to hell. What does that garment mean? I'm going to give you my reading. You all can disagree with me. I think that's the old, I mean, Christ, you know, the parable of the um, prodigal son. So many of his parables are setting the law or the old covenant against the new. And he's showing that there's general, I mean, in the take the prodigal son. The son who stayed home is the old covenant. He, he you know, the, the, the young guy did, blew everything, but he came home and acknowledged his fault. He, wa he wanted to come. He wasn't stubborn staying away. So one of the, at least one of the things that we know biblically is that when people approach Christ, that's, that's why the sacrament of confession for the Catholic Church is so important. It gives us an opening to say, I'm sorry, forgive me. Because we just don't stubbornly hold on to our sins as if it doesn't matter. Because if that's what we bring to Christ, <laughs> we've got all the, you know, the episodes showing what's likely to happen with that. So there, there's a danger within Christianity to just say, oh, I love you, and, you know, and I mean, as Mark says, and, and um, Tracy, that you're bringing together by saying he's our redeemer, but how do you deal with accountability? How do you, you know, the, that the great, the great challenge, it seems, for all of us is to bring both of those things together, and that's, I think, that's one of the defining marks of our church. But you guys go ahead and jump in on this, or um, wherever you want. My question is, um, we believe in a, we believe in a God who loved us so much that he sent his son, and he did it to fill the law, to answer an injustice against his father. The crucifixion either answers that injustice, or it's meaningless. But what he does is bring to that a, a love that none of us could. It's a divine love, and Christ asked us to bring that to everything we do. So, I, I don't see, I don't see our faith saying, you know, just say I love and that's it, because that isn't what we see in Christ. Or being compassionate, that's it. Or you know, or it seems to me it's much harder than that. Um, it's bringing those two things together. And my question is, why not go to Islam, Judaism? Because they've got a love, a law. They believe in love. They believe in mercy. What's the difference in having a God who was divine enter, take on our nature, and do what he did? And it just wasn't the cross. It was his whole life, everything he did. And he asked us to do as well.
says it makes us adopted Christ's act passion makes us adopted sons and daughters mm-hmm. we come from the Trinity we're going back to the Trinity um, he says in our reading on Sunday he says all these signs and of course St. Faustina has a vision of what we'll see as well which is pretty like it says here um, that men will die of fright in anticipation of what is coming upon the earth and the, the visions that we get are truly terrifying but he says when these things begin to happen stand erect and hold your heads high yeah. for your deliverance is near at hand so in the face of and I don't know if you guys have read uh, Pope Francis talked about it the Lord of the World is that right? Lord of the World um, Robert Hugh Benson wrote it in the 30s I think he was a priest and it's about kind of the end of time and all these things these that Chesterton is talking about in the 1920s it's like they come to their full fruition so it sounds a lot about it sounds a lot like the time we're living in now yeah and um, and these signs have these signs come and um, so I don't know I mean I what I'm trying to say is again it's through Christ that we can stand erect and hold our heads high. Can Jews or Muslims? I don't. I don't know what they're. What they're. What I don't know. Tracy, let me ask you this. Let me wait if I can. Let me ask you this question. I can. Is if I remember the readings, and I you you've got them. I don't have them in front of me. But if I remember, um, I think Christ. I, I loved it because it was just good to re, you know. If those moments come, stand erect. If I remember, he used the word blameless. Blameless. Be blameless. Wait, 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 before you look. Right. And if I remember, if I remember in Paul's letters, in the same service on Saturday, Paul asked, urged us to be blameless. Now let me ask this, okay? Let's take, I mean, let's take the prodigal son. The one son goes, he's not blameless. He, he, he wastes his inheritance. The other son is blameless in the sense he says, I've been faithful to you all along. I, you know, I didn't do all this stuff. I didn't. And yet the father gives the banquet for the prodigal son who wasted it all, but who came home. The one who's always been home in his own mind, I think, was blameless. And yet, it, if I remember correctly, in that reading, we don't see him joining the feast. There's an open question of whether he goes or not. It's like he resents. So take somebody who's Christian, who's experienced his sinfulness and knows his sins, who's called to be blameless. Take somebody who's Jewish, who's fulfilled the law. I mean, Christ meets several people that way who are Jewish, who say, I've done everything you've said, um, who present themselves before Christ as blameless. Will there be any difference between those two men? Was that question clear? A Christian who has sinned, who carries a sense of sin, who struggles to be blameless. I mean, if, if end times end tomorrow, I believe I'm going to die with sins in my soul. I, you know, but his, um, when that moment comes, will there be no difference between those two men? Or will they be the same? Because they will both want to present themselves as being blameless before God. I don't know what you're showing me, Doug. There's a blameless. Oh, here, Susanna's. This is from Paul. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all 
just as that he does that because that's Christ. He brought it for everybody. Even if people refused him, he still brought it. And it's clear that there was a danger if they did refuse him. He makes that clear because he repeatedly tosses people out. For all, just as we have for you, so as to strengthen your hearts to be blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with the Holy Ones. So, Tracy, how would you, how would you answer that? If somebody was Christian, if, if the end times came now, I mean, the signs of being are often, they're awful right now. I mean, they, what, what, what's being described is pretty close to what's going on. I, I, we don't know when end times, you know, it may come in our grandchildren, it may not come for two centuries, who knows. But if a Christian appeared before Christ, um, with this readings, with his efforts to do what Christ asked and Paul, and somebody Jewish came who thought of himself as being blameless, would you see the two men as being the same or different? If different, how? I mean, I, I presume in my, I presume that a Christian has a relationship with Jesus based on his d divine and human nature, and a, a Jew or a Muslim doesn't believe that he's divine. So that relationship is different if there's one at all. I mean, that's all I know to say about yeah. that. Fred, can you can you offer your thoughts on this? Well, I think I, I guess maybe I should speak for myself as opposed to all Christians, but I, I think if. And who knows what? Who knows what you're gonna think, right? I mean, it's got to be an awesome thing. Um, so I, I may be just having trouble standing up, much less thinking. Anything. Um, but I, my first thought's gonna be, yes, we were right. You know, my grandmother, my great grandmother, you know, were, you know, all all those all those things they told me all those years, they were right. Hallelujah. I, but I'm not going to stand there. I'm going to. That's just crazy. I think. I think. I think you would stand there and you would be in awe. Probably a little afraid, but extremely hopeful that all 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 those things that you fundamentally grew up on and believed were real and tried to live. And but I'm not going to stand there and think I'm blameless. I'm just—I'm going to sit there and say, "Man, I hope you were listening to all those prayers, confessing <laughs> all those sins." So, I mean, the fact that anybody could actually—you know—you know—you know—if if if you don't believe in Christ, which neither of those religions do, other than maybe a, a prophet, or you know a you know a better than normal human being, but if you don't believe that divinity part. Uh, I, it, it, it can't be the same experience, right? I mean, if you, if you think you can stand there blameless because you follow the law, well, good luck, Charlie. You know, I, 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 think, I, think, there's humili I think there's a humility there. Maybe that's the best way to approach it. 
I think there's a humility there that the Christian would, would feel that maybe one of the others would not. Or a depth of humility, yeah. You know, when I think about the... Um, That's all I've got. Yeah, well, I don't believe that, but the Hasidic Jews who, you know, who try to live their Orthodox belief more than, a let's say, a Reformed or a modern Jew, deeply believe in humility. But let me take, let me go back again to the Trinity because they don't believe in a Trinity. We believe in an indwelling of persons, right? That the Son is one completely with the Father, not part of, he's one. So is the Spirit. The, the Spirit is an advocate. I mean, Christ said he, he sent him as a, as a condemner to accuse us, to reveal our, our souls, to show us, to assuage, to comfort. But the Spirit, this is so amazing. You can't miss, in a sense, God in the Old Testament. I mean, he's in the garden, walking around, asking Adam and Eve where they are, and, you know, and Christ was here. We don't put a face to the Spirit. It's hard to see him. We know that we believe that he can be here and on the other side of the earth. That he's infinite. So, But we do believe, because of our belief in the Trinity, in an indwelling. So we do believe that the Spirit can indwell. Um, Fred, I was enjoying your comments because when I heard them, you know, the readings, I, I just think most of us long to be blameless, to really do that. To, to put our sins away. Um, and I, I myself think there's a fundamental difference between somebody who tries to do that and fails, who just keeps going, and somebody who thinks he's on top of it and, you know, if he believes in Christ, it's over and he's saved. And, um, and you know, we see that difference in the temple, in the, in the one guy who, who's a sinner and the other guy who, who's priding himself because he thinks he's blameless. Christ critiques that everywhere. And he, he, he makes it pretty clear the dangers for us in thinking, you know, we're that. And yet we're, at, and to, Trace, to Tracy's point, we're asked to do that, to struggle to be blameless. And it seems to me it's impossible to do that without humility or going to a cross because that's at the center. If we're not putting ourselves away, absolutely, in those moments, whatever they are, whatever the conflict or trial or tension or then it's hard for me to see us doing what Christ has asked, you know, to, to pull this tension together that Tracy was struggling with. So I couldn't agree more. But the only, the only point I wanted to make here is that if we do believe in the indwelling of the Trinity, we also believe that the, that the Spirit can indwell in us. Don, remember when we did Dante? Dante's famous, or at least for me, that famous line at the top of the Purgatorio, when they were just when Dante was setting the types of poetry out, that was not a small thing for me. I remember critiquing it: the Platonic on one side, the uh, pornographic on the other, and Dante in the mean, and saying, um, "I follow what the Spirit dictates to me." How many people live their lives trying to follow the Spirit, and that the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ? So to me, there's a fundamental difference between um, somebody who's Jewish, somebody who's Islamic, and somebody who's Christian. They all can appear to live up to the law, outwardly. The real question is, inwardly, how are they living? What are they doing? What's going on there? And God will be the judge of that. We can't. All we can do is 
I mean, I think Fred's word was right on. All we can do is continue to do what we do as much in humility. I also think in severity. And I'm going back to Chesterton when he says, you know, if you're going to reform Pimlico, you can't... Remember, when you love somebody for a reason, and that reason's gone, your love's gone. It's only when we love somebody when we don't have a reason that we can ever do the things we need to do with each other. That's a radical position, and it's frightening because it's mysterious. We're not going to find a way into that in the, in the world because the world will give us all sorts of other ways. But the way of Christ is not that way. And Chesterton makes, at least Chesterton, as, as one person, makes that clear over and again, but particularly in that chapter. Um, the spirit can inbreathe so that even if you line 20 people up and they all look like they've conformed to the law, have they? Will they be judged on that? Um, what goes on inside of a person and how does that reflect in his life? And I'm going to say it does reflect Joan of Arc, Thomas More, Thomas Beckett. You know, you, we can go on and on and on. Um, what we do reveals the spirit inside of us. We can have a black-white spirit. We can, have, we can be self-righteous. Um, seems to me we can be angry and okay and humble and okay. Um, how do we, I mean, it's not like we have a map, you know, a clear map. I mean, the struggle for each of us is going to be a little bit different. Um, but I think the struggle is real in the, in the way that Christ has laid it out for us. Is, um, I think there's a radical difference. Um, we are called to the world. We are called to evangelize. We are called to risk our lives. We are called to bring Christ. We fail I think I'm speaking for myself. We fail a lot. It doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying. Um, as a matter of fact, I sometimes wonder if if the wounds that we carry from those struggles aren't a grace that they're part of our life. You know that I, I believe so much in what Chesterton said. If we ever get to a point where if we we think we're okay and we're home, you know, you've heard me say this lots before. Then. We may be in more danger than we think. Um, we live in a mystery. Flannery O'Connor's description was under construction. We are always moving, always changing. Once we go to Christ, it's not like everything's settled. It's as if it's only then that things begin. <laughs> if I can put it that way. But anyway, I'd, so I'd say at a practical level, the the differences are real. If you live by the law, and you think you fulfilled it. You're settled. If you happen to believe in a Christian faith that says once you accept Christ, it's done, it's settled. That's not our faith. Um, we are called to bring the law and love together. That involves us an ongoing. I think my. It involves us in an ongoing cross. And it should make a difference in our lives at a practical level in everything we do with each other. We can't hide. We can't run away. Um, we can't go beating people over the head. But um, but we have to struggle to bring him to everything we do. I love your description, Fred, because when I was listening to the gospel, I was feeling exactly the same thing. Wanting to stand straight. I mean, genuinely wanting to stand and feeling shaking, you know, humbled and frightened and um, aware of sins and... 
You know, I take so seriously what he said. We're called to stand up straight. <laughs> My own sense is, I'm speaking for me. I don't, you know, I, I, we're, I think we're asked to do that even if we're aware that we are overwhelmed by our own sins, terrified by them. And I may be speaking too much for myself right now, but I think I'm sharing your, your sympathies. Doc, do you have thoughts on any of this? <coughs> Did you answer your thing the other day where, you, where I asked you what's the difference you said between Jewish and Islam you said and then you left it and said I'm not sure do you No I think <clears throat> my expectation is just <coughs> thinking about it my expectation is that there will be Jews and Muslims in heaven For sure um, Or I believe that I don't. I mean, I stand with you or cower. Maybe I don't even have the strength to stand um, with you and Fred, aware of my own. We're both shaking on our knees and going down on our knees as I see us, um, trying to stand up and... I, um, I pray every day that I won't put blameless out of reach that I won't say I can never do that um, because that would be to stop trying to be that yeah um, do I honestly think I'll ever get there no <laughs> but I can't give myself the excuse of saying yeah I'll yeah never, yeah I'll never get there yeah. Let me stop. Um, I hope I'm going to put together those quotes and I'll send them all to you. You know, they're just they're just quotes. Um, my own recommendation, but particularly for you, Mark and Tracy, but but all of you. I, I mean, Mark, you you were honestly truthful about. Um, I, Chesterton. The beauty of Chesterton for me is that he doesn't write in a style of a philosopher. You know, he's He's a journalist, he's humorous, he's funny, he's witty, he plays with words. But I also think he's got one of the most profound minds of the 20th century. And he uses, he, he shows us how capable reason is of answering disorders. He, he took on every major disorder and gave us a reason for answering it. How many of us can draw on our sources, the sources of our minds, to answer those things when they come up in daily conversation, to say, you know, you you may believe that, but I think there's some problems here. So, Chesterton, he's cheer and and what he says in that chapter on um, the the flag of the world, you know, that we're born into the world before we can criticize it. He makes it so clear that our first response to anything should be gratitude. You know, we should be grateful that we didn't have to be here. I mean, I, that amazes me sometimes. You know, that any of us is here. We didn't have to be here. Yet we are. You should be um, I, for the Democrats. Huh? You should be grateful for the Democrats. <laughs> um, so the first response should be gratitude. I can't read Chester without feeling this liveliness and this trust in some goodness. I mean, he's looking at a world full of shrinking horrors. You know, he's, he's looking at all these isms that present themselves as liberating man. 
And he's quite clear that every one of them is not. But he, he presents it all rationally, convincingly, cheerfully. Just an extraordinary man. He, so my, I would encourage all of you to reread Chesterton. Put him away for a while. Come back to him in six months or a year. But, but I firmly believe that whatever difficulties he presented, like any work, you know, read Hamlet the first time. Who can understand Hamlet the first time, really? You, you, you have to put the whole thing together. And I've said this repeatedly, Lear, Hamlet, Moby Dick, doesn't matter. The first time we read a work, we can never see it, because we can only see it in parts unfolding. It's not till we see the whole thing that we can see it, and, and then we might realize if we're good, that means we really didn't see a lot going on. When we go back and read it the second time, I mean, we read it with different eyes. We see that isolated passages meant so much more than we knew they did, because we didn't see the whole. You've read Chesterton. You know, you've seen the whole. You've struggled with some of the difficulties. Pick it up again. You know, three months, six months, a year. It, it, will, it, it will offer you so much more on a second reading when you, you know, when you pick it up. So I would just encourage you. I, he's an extraordinary gift to the world. Um, I have a question. Yeah. This is, this is Julie. You okay, stayed, you stayed with us, I saw. Concisely give me an answer of the difference if you line up a Christian, a Jew, and a Muslim. And how, what's the difference? Fred? Can, no, come on, offer an answer. Come on, can you? I, I, hate, I hate to put my, myself in the position of a Muslim and what they believe because I, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with the Jewish religion, but the Muslim religion for me, I, I, I don't really think it, I don't really think it's fundamentally founded on anything like, I mean, somebody comes out of a cave and claims something. Uh, the scientist in me struggles with that. Yeah. The, 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 at least the Jewish and the, the Christian faith are are based on something fundamental. So I I I, I hesitate to think what that person might think, yeah. but I I just believe that from the from the Jewish and the Christian perspective, I just go back to the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees, and to me the biggest. The biggest issue Christ was dealing with with them was their pride, their lack of humility, and they would they would walk around and point fingers at people because they weren't following one of the three hundred and thirty five laws or however many they were yeah. ultimately yeah. were. Yeah. Um, and Christ was trying to tell them, "You guys have like missed it completely," and it was that that element that that Christ brought with him that was the fulfillment of the law that's missing. And if you don't, you don't believe in Christ, you don't believe that he was fully human and yet fully divine, I don't think you're ever going to find that fulfillment, that missing piece. I mean, you can follow laws forever, yeah. but you still miss the, the love 
if you will, or the compassion, yeah. or the humility that comes with that. And I think if you look at the, you know, all of the all of the Sadducees and the Pharisees that we run across in the Gospels, the, the thing that's just always missing is that belief that you know I'm ready. You know, I'm, I'm, I have fulfilled everything that you have asked me to fulfill. I'm ready to go. And if you look at all the people that Christ kind of gave special effort to, time to, they were people who realized that they're struggling and were, and were looking to that fulfillment that they had not yet achieved. And to me, that's kind of the difference. If you if you believe in Christ, then there is a longing to be better, a recognition that you're not, and a desire to get, like Suzanne just said, a desire to get from where we are now relative to a, a, a still point, a... A, a, a concept that, that Christ shared with us, a constant effort to get better, knowing that we're, we're going to get better. We may never, we, we're never going to be perfect, but the longer we try and the more we work on it, you know, the better we're going we're gonna to get. And if you're not in that mode, um, I would imagine that the second coming is going to be <laughs> a, a real... Shock. <laughs> I'm still shocked. And I, the question I have for you is, okay, so you and I are sitting there trembling on our rickety knees trying to stand up. Is it too late to pray? <laughs> never, never. Well, you got the, here, I want to take on Julie's, I'm sorry, Fred, if I, if I seem to okay. Julie, I want to, because I'm really glad you're here, because I wasn't sure that you are going to be here, but it's a really good question. Let me offer my response to it. it I mean, which is only sort of pulling together what everybody's been saying. If you line three of them up, I, first of all, I believe that what Suzanne said is true, that there are going to be um, lots of Christians who won't make heaven, and there will be Jews and Islams who will. I mean, I, I believe that, and, and I believe it for my faith. Um, that St. Thomas... Sorry? If they don't believe in Christ. Wait, wait, Mark. Mark, wait, if you can. Let me let me try to answer. If, if you want to jump in, I'll take your question. But right now I'm trying to answer Julie's. Um, respect that, Mark. Hold on. Um, line three people up. Um, the one thing that all of them have in common is the law. For all three. The distinction that Fred made is, we've not gone to it all, but the distinction he made is a real one. You can say with real certainty that Islam um, is heretical. I mean, it is a heresy. It, um, even, even though it bases itself on the law and is, has its roots in Ishmael, whom God protects, and hold on to that, because God does protect him. Um, all of them are based on the law, but the, the law to the Jew is um, through all the promises and covenants that God made with the Jews all along. There are 12 of them. I can't remember them, but if you've got the covenant, the promises, um, the um, Shekinah, the, that, the, the, the brilliance, the light of the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, all those things were given to the Jews. 
all in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. So all of their beliefs are rooted in the law and prophecy. What you've got in Islam is exactly, I mean, in the way Fred described it, mine might not seem attractive, but it's, it's literally true. You've got a prophet coming out of a cave with these revelations, and they're all private. Um, to me, it reminds me of Luther with his private revelations, that there's, there's this rationalizing. But you've got three people lined up. The one thing they have in common is the law. The question is, um, what's the spirit in which they live that law? Um, there are going to be Islams who live the law. I, some of the most gentle people I've ever met in my life are Islamic because they follow the law so closely. I mean, they're just very gentle. But inwardly, the question is, what's going on? I mean, we've been wrestling with, with that over that matter for the last hour. What's the spirit that you bring to the law? What Christ makes clear in the, in the Bible, we see it in the Old Testament as well, is there's a danger because people can become self-righteous and live the law for themselves in pride, in arrogance. The Sadducees do that, the Pharisees, that's what we see. So somebody Islamic can obey the law. The question of how much love he brings to his fulfillment of the law is a harder thing. Our belief is the judgment about that rests in God's hands. We can make this distinction what it's going to mean for ultimate ends is not in our hands. We, we've got to live what we've been asked regardless. That's a judgment we can't make. We can certainly make a judgment of that and see the, the problems that that presents. Somebody who's Jewish is going to have the help of the history and prophecies and the whole tradition, customs. The great danger for the Jews, which Christ made clear, was that there are these there are 613 observances. And Christ made clear, you know, when he says when they're when the God, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are accusing him because his disciples are eating. I mean, he constantly goes back to the Old Testament and refers to the law of his father. But the bridegroom is there, so they they be, they were becoming self righteous in a way that was actually against their own laws, not the six hundred observances, the Mosaic laws that was given by the Father, by Christ's Father. And we know there's no way he's going to abrogate that. None. That's his father. He's he fulfilled them everywhere. So a Jew, somebody who's Jewish, at least has that help in his call to love, to practice mercy. How well does he live it? How well does he do it? If we put the three people next to each other. Take somebody who's Christian in, in the way that we've been describing. The, the interesting difference is I thought Fred's description was really good. Um, we not only have the law, we have a God who, who not only walked Emmanuel, who was not only with us, who walked among us, he was constantly making us aware of a divine presence and miracles in our daily lives. And um, that fact becomes dividing because we know lots of the Sadducees and Pharisees looked at that and all they saw was bad. I mean, all we, what we learn is how much pride and envy can blind us. Because they wanted to take good acts performed by Christ and turn them into evil. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. They saw him as blasphemous, evil, claiming he was God. 
There was no, they, no way they could allow that in a, according to their own beliefs. So one of the questions, you know, that we're left with here is you've got these three men lined up. According to the law, I mean, at least that's the way I tried to present it a while, according to outward behavior, they all conform to the law. Do they bring the same spirit? So the way in which they live, the way they talk, the way they carry on, will it be the same? Presumably, hopefully, the difference in a, in a Christian is that he would be a greater humility and maybe even a greater severity. He'd be willing to go to his death living that, which is one of the reasons we've got like somebody like Joan of Arc or um, the, the disciples who go into a social occasion who are not concerned about what people are going to think of them. They're not afraid to offend anybody. You know, they're not hysterical. They're not losing it. But they're speaking the truth. They're carrying Christ. And people are going to hate them. So, at least for the third person, it seems to me, there's a whole... Julie, I don't know what to call it. There's a whole dimension of something otherworldly, mystical, miraculous, divine, that should be a part of that Christian's life. Do Christians ever reach a point where they do what the Jews and Islams do? I would say absolutely. There are lots of Christians who believe it's settled. It's over. I'm saved. It's done. In that respect, they're just like somebody Jewish or Islamic. I believe this. It's settled. But what at least what I've been arguing it in Chesterton is, I mean, off of him, is that what's really important is whether the Christian is pulling all these things together, not allowing black-white, one thing to cancel another, to hold all of this together. Um, the only way that I can put it is to, to live aware that we're in the presence of a mystery, that things are not settled. And, and to make that a part of your life so that you may have to go into a war and kill somebody that won't put you at odds with God. That um, last statement clarified it. That last statement. Sorry, Julie, I'm not explain what you mean. I'm not... I, you, you just said something that really clarified it for me. And I, it was uh, right before you said you can go to war, but it was something I can't... Now I'm like Tracy. I can't remember what you said. What a, <laughs> I can't either, so... But anyway, it was it clarified it for me. It Good. was like... Uh, Good. You know, the, the, the real interesting thing, I mean, Christ made it clear that the life of the Spirit inwardly... The law is important for all three religions. It's fundamental. But the spirit that people bring to fulfilling the law is absolutely crucial. And that should be reflected in the way we live. We can go to war, kill, fight a battle. That in itself won't separate us from God. What could separate us is what we do with those things ourselves inwardly. And the Christ came to make it clear that what was more important than outward observances of the law was the work of the Spirit in entering into the world that he offered, that nobody else could. It's this whole miraculous order that Christ brought into the world. That's why so many people turned away from him. They would not allow for that. But it's one of the things that we hunger for because it's something we all thirst for, and Christ made it real for us. If I can put it that way, 
Tracy, last thoughts? No, I've just been thinking. Well, I've just been thinking about um, what your what your motivation is for um, wanting to strive for blamelessness. Yep. And I was thinking about um, because we have Christ and what He did for us it gives you. that kind of it makes your motivation not about you I guess <laughs> no it's true like what, what more it's can true. what it's the least that you could do yeah you know too just on a I mean we're closing and pass I've got to stop here but one of the things you could ask is line those three men up and look at the art that they produce Look at the art of somebody who's Islamic. I mean this really seriously. Look at the art of somebody who's Jewish. When there's a strong anti-iconoclastic anti in the Jewish people, this dread of images, because according to the commandment, you couldn't expose the art because you couldn't put an image there. To put an image with God is blasphemous. So there's a resistance towards images in the Jewish people. And that's interesting because Hollywood is... Um, has a strong Jewish population. Um, but put art next to those three people. Look at the kind of art somebody who's Islamic would produce. What would it say about that person's relationship to God, to nature, to others? Look at the artwork of somebody who's Jewish. What would it say about his relation to God, the world, to others? Look at the art of a Christian and see what that art would say about his relation to God or the world or others, you know, it would be a very different art. Very, very different because the beliefs are very different. And I'm not saying, you I, you know, I mean, what, sorry, Fred, you, you know, we started this class with the Iliad. And you know that, you know how much I love the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Iliad. They're pagan. And yet what they show us about our human nature to me is extraordinary. Anyway, sorry, Fred, go ahead. Well, I just wanted, to, I don't want to start a whole lot of discussion because I know it's late, but I think it'll come up in the gospel readings. I just go back to a comment Mark made just a bit ago. There, and, and I've been in a lot of discussions with a lot of people of other faiths, and I think one of the big questions that comes up with Christ is, what did he mean when he said, no one can go to the Father except, except through, through me? me. And I think that always comes up in the question, well, if you don't believe in Christ, can you really go to heaven? Right. And so it's going to come up in our gospel readings, and I just think it's worth not losing yeah. Good. Uh, an opportunity to bring up in a discussion. Yeah. Because it is constantly the battle between different religions in terms of right. are you, can, you really go to, can you really get to heaven if you don't believe in Christ? Right. If I can put that a little bit dirty, he said... Nobody comes to me, ex or nobody comes to the Father except through me. So one of the questions that has to be asked, and I don't want to, you're right, I don't want, this is not the time. One of the questions is, what does that mean? Does that mean just belief in him, which is Fred's word there at the end, or through a love like his, even if you're not aware of him? I mean, what does it mean to say, nobody comes to me, ex or the Father, except through me? Because he doesn't say, Nobody comes 
to the Father unless you believe in me. He didn't say that. He said, nobody comes to the Father except through me. So if he's the means, the door, the light, you know, and everything else, and he is what he is, the question is, can people live that in cultures outside of Christianity? Can they live it within a Christian world? By the way, I happen to believe that the one country most in need of missionary work right now in the world is America. Anyway, um, wow. I hope, I'm glad we did Chesterton. I hope you all go back to him and um, we've got to take a deep breath because we're going to go to a place that I've never been before. I mean, I've read the Gospels, Gospels for ages, but um, so this is going to be interesting and, and I hope we can all do this together. It, it may rile because people may have different readings of passages, so we're going to have to see how that goes. Um, but anyway, I'm looking forward to it, genuinely looking forward to doing this. Um, I'm going to talk with Father um, Sojin, and, because we're doing Gospels now, not literature, and ask if he will put it in the bulletin. I don't know that he will, because I think there are people who would like to do the Gospel. So if you know of anybody who wants to do the Gospel, invite them. It would be... Good to see some newcomers, so. Bob? Yeah. There shouldn't be any discussion. There shouldn't be very much, uh, you know, obvious discussion about the Gospels at all, because if we're all Catholic, the Bible is the sole possession of the Church. There is no discussion about what it means. <laughs> Period. <laughs> but you you know you know that there's... Well, just hold on, Mark. God, I, what did... No, that, that's... <laughs> If you believe in the Catholic faith, I know that's what you believe. Mark, here, just hold on. If you don't, if, if well, I can, hold on. Mark, here, I just, I, God bless your soul. Hold on, I have to, I have to roll my sleeves up and get another glass of wine. Mark, my dear, my dearest, dearest friend, and I'm saying that honestly. You, you know that. Hold on a minute, Mark. Um, Saint Thomas and Bonaventure went at each other almost as enemies. They were both Catholic. They held different views. If you read the comment, let's say Jerome, if you read the com this is the Church Fathers, Mark. Mm -hmm. If you read the Church Fathers' commentaries on the Bible, you see tremendous dif differences between them. Hold on. Um, does that mean anything heretical will get in there? Absolutely not. At because we've got a magisterium, and we've got a an agreement. So we're not going to get readings of the Bible that are contrary to that. But within that, there is tremendous disagreement, tremendous differences, and a spirit of reconciling them, not making it black and white. If you don't believe this, you're, you know. There's tremendous differences. In fact, one, I mean, one of the, to go back to what I said earlier about the Trinity, I was so glad that the, the woman brought it up the way she did, between unity and diversity. It's not one or the other. If you don't hold those two things together, you're lost. It's a little bit like saying the most important thing of the Trinity is unity. It's not. You have to hold the unity, the oneness, and the plurality of persons together. That's a hard thing for our minds. In fact, it's so hard, the majority of the world don't accept it. Islams don't. Jews don't. So there's a, a great diversity of readings. Does that mean diversity in itself or the fact that you disagree makes you right? Absolutely no. Because people believe they're right a lot and are not. But does that mean we can't have a conversation to learn from each other? No, it doesn't. Because those differences help. Thomas's God, if you've read St. Thomas seriously, 
Here's Thomas's method of proceeding. People reduce it to a system. It's not a system. He's the most living thinker I know of. You cannot read a question. Listen, because this is good, Mark. You cannot read a question by St. Thomas that is not put in terms of existence. He's the most existential philosopher who's ever lived. He never, once in his life, not once, asked, what's the nature of something? That's platonic. That's going to get you to an idea and leave you in your head, Mark. Every question is whether something is so or not. And the only answer you can get to it is, it is either yes or no. St. Thomas never deals with a question without putting a number of questions that seem to be the right answer. And then says, on the contrary. So the very nature of his philosophy is, I don't call it dialogic, tension, questioning um, and Thomas would have known he, he himself said it he could not have done the thinking he did he could not have arrived at the truth he did if he had not learned to engage not dismiss them not condemn them if he hadn't learned to engage with those people who differed from him they helped him see things he couldn't have seen without them Take that away from the church, the church will die. That's the St. Thomas is the doctor, I mean, one of the central doctors of the church. So, um, If I believed what you said, I would have had no reason for having this class. It's because I don't believe it that we're having this class now, and, and, and for which I'm grateful, and, I, and you, I, you can laugh at me, if you're ever not here, I will miss you. You all have a good week. We'll meet a week from Monday to start Matthew. We'll, do, we'll start with the idea of getting a third of it. I don't know how it's going to go. I have no background in this. I'm not used to teaching it. So I, I, all I can say is I hope you guys will be patient with it. Mark. Be patient Are with you me, said please. A week from Monday or next Monday? I thought we were meeting next Monday, but not. The Sorry, morning. a week, a week from today. Uh, okay, okay, okay. Sorry, thanks, thanks for straightening me out. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night. Bye, you guys. Good night. Bye. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>